This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, September 20th, 2019, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. So we have a really good show for you guys today. We are discussing the high stakes of human capital management. Uh, we are delighted to have three guests in studio with us today. First, let me introduce you to Yvonne Jones. Yvonne is a director in the Strategic Issues Team at the Government Accountability Office, or GAO as we call it. She oversees human capital management issues, a wide range of issues from implementation of telework in the executive branch, evaluation of workforce trading programs, use of special pay authorities uh, to attract new federal employees. She does a lot over there and has been with the GAO team since 2003. So good morning, Yvonne. Thanks for being here. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Great. And next we have Triana McNeil. Triana is a director on the Strategic Issues, Homeland Security, and Justice teams at GAO. She has been with GAO since 1999, working on several teams overseeing government performance, agency collaboration practices, and law and justice issues. Triana, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. And finally, we have Jason Baer. Jason is a director on the International Affairs and Trade Team. He has been with GAO since 2000, um, working to oversee the management of foreign affairs agencies, including the Department of State, USAID. He deals with key issues involving diplomatic security, embassy construction, foreign services staffing and training, and public diplomacy. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Natalia. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about that, visit LTC Feds today. To get us started, um, I want to, you know, we, we discuss on the show a lot strategic human capital management and the importance of managing the federal workforce effectively and, you know, attracting the best and the brightest to the federal workforce. But I don't think we've ever really defined it. So to start us off, I would love for you know one of you to be able to define what strategic human capital management is and what that really means in the federal workforce. Okay, why, why didn't I take that? Okay, so the way GAO defines strategic human capital management is a consistent strategic approach to marshalling, managing, and maintaining the human capital needed to maximize the government's performance and to ensure government accountability. So in everyday language, it means that an agency does work which is interesting enough to attract people to apply to the agency, that they know how to hire them within a reasonable amount of time, that they bring them in, they explain the agency's objectives to them, that people see that they have an interesting career path, and that they are engaged enough to want to work for the agency for a while. Yeah, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, we just recently did a show on attracting young people to the federal government and making the federal government People, allowing people to view it more as like a lifelong career and uh, see it as like a, a real form of public service. And so uh, I really like the way that you define that and about attracting people and making people want to work with the federal government. Um, unfortunately, strategic human capital management has been on the high risk list for quite some time. And um, Yvonne, I think you can give us a little bit more information about why uh, this problem is considered high risk. Sure. So a program is high risk if it's vulnerable to fraud, waste, abuse, or mismanagement, 
or needs transformation. So for the human capital issue, it's primarily a need for a transformation of the way that agencies manage their, their staff. Although in some cases, cases, the absence of workers with the required skills and, and experience could lead to program implementation problems. So as an example, um, a shortage of skilled and experienced uh, human resource staff could diminish an agency's capacity to um, identify and to hire workers. And um, I know when addressing issues on the high-risk list, there are five main criteria that uh, they are evaluated based on uh, leadership commitment, capacity, uh, whether or not they have an action plan, monitoring, and demonstrated progress. Right. Could you speak a little bit to where human capital management falls in some of these areas? Okay, I'd be glad to do that. So first of all, um, OPM, uh, the, the Office of Personnel Management and the agencies have met the leadership commitment criterion. They have partially met the, the criteria that relate to capacity, having an action plan, and monitoring steps that agencies have taken. They have not met the criterion of demonstrating progress, and that's because across the, the executive branch, we don't yet have a process or a government-wide schedule for identifying skills gaps and then having some metrics that we can use to evaluate whether the skills gaps are being closed. Um, that's a really good point, the addressing the skills gaps, and I know we're going to get a little bit more into that later. We actually are going to focus on two case studies um, within this human capital management arena. And the first one is dealing with the merger between OPM and GSA. Um, this is something that the GAO has been very on top of. And Triana, I know you've played a big role in that. So if you would like to give us some context for uh, what is going on between this, what we call the OPM-GSA merger, and uh, how that relates to human capital management. Sure. Um, we've got ongoing work looking at um, a number of select government-wide reforms. Um, and in May, we were asked to testify um, in front of Congress um, and really try to underscore some of the challenges related to these reforms. Um, and based on the evidence that, that we had assessed at that time um, in May, we identified that the agencies were not following certain key practices that they needed to to successfully implement that reform. Um, they lacked outcome-oriented goals. Um, there was no cost-benefit analysis done. What is the purpose of this reform? They were not articulating that clearly. Um, there were no implementation plans. Um, and they did not fully involve the Congress um, employees and other key stakeholders on their efforts. I mean, that was the main message of, of what I testified on in, in May as it relates to this reform. Um, I know one of the things uh, that OPM and GSA did do, or the administration did do, is in May that they released a document with some of the rationale behind this merger. And one of the things that they wanted the reorganization to do was better support human capital delivery across the federal government. So I think a good starting place is to ask, um, based on the research you guys have done at GAO, if that how the merger will actually ha impact that human capital policy. We know that's their goal, but are they moving in that direction? Uh, based on what we know to date, the reform will change where human capital functions are housed. So background investigations move to DOD. The executive office of the president would do the policy and workforce strategy functions. And then all of the remaining OPM functions would move to GSA. That is the extent of what we know to date. Got it. Um, and I'm, you know, you talk about moving uh, some of the things from OPM to GSA. This is obviously going to be a big transition, um, as well as some of the other uh, executive offices of the president. What would you guys say are some of the elements of government-wide human capital management that are most important to retain or, you know, protect? That's a very important question. Uh, GAO's stance on that, wherever these capacities are housed, 
there are four key capacities for human capital management. One, um, we need to be able to identify trends for the future workforce. What are technological advances? What are some of the changing demographics that we need to stay on top of? Second, we need to coordinate with stakeholders to address those trends, right? Um, we need to be working um, with individual agencies as well as OMB, OPM, the Chico Council. All of those folks need to be involved in addressing um, the trends. Um, third, we need to have a government that leads the design of government-wide solution to shared human capital challenges. Um, in past work, we've identified some barriers to that. Um, for example, fed federal budgeting and accounting structures reinforce single agency resources. Um, and so agencies may be reluctant to contribute to some of those government-wide solutions. Um, and the fourth one, we need to administer and enforce civil service laws and regulations. Um, for example, um, we need to enforce those protections from prohibited human capital practices. We need to enforce due process, fair, fast, final, those types of things. I definitely want to get more into some of what you just mentioned and those really important elements of human capital management and why they need to be protected. But we are right up against our first break here. So you guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We will continue our discussion with Yvonne, Triana, and Jason after a break and a word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are just diving into some of the big issues surrounding human capital management in the federal government. I am sitting down with Yvonne Jones from the GAO Strategic Issues team, Triana McNeil from the GAO Strategic Issues and Homeland Security and Justice teams, and Jason Bear with the GAO International Affairs and Trade team. And we were just talking about uh, some of the critical elements of human capital management and why they need to be retained no matter where they are. So um, I think kind of part of the message is, you know, OPM might not be doing this great right now, uh, but whether or not it stays with OPM, there is a merger, there is this large reorganization, some of these important issues about identifying trends in the workforce, retaining due process in our civil service laws, um, involving groups collaboratively, th those need to be maintained no matter what. That's right. And I'm a little curious, uh, one of the things that you guys have focused on in your report is the focus on leadership and the attention that leadership is giving to these reforms. And if you could speak a little bit, Triana, to what that looks like and what the leadership challenges are uh, that exist right now. Sure. Uh, transformations should be led by a dedicated team. Uh, leaders need to illustrate what success looks like. What is the ideal end state to this reform, for example? Uh, GSA has designated an SES to lead the reorganization. Um, it also has um, dedicated staff and a team to implement certain project planning. Um, <clears throat> but we still have questions about the reform plan. Um, what is the end goal? There are no specific goals, nor was there a cost-benefit analysis. So we don't fully understand the why behind the reform, and we don't have the necessary details, and there's not a leader that's clearly articulated that. And I know when we talk a little bit more about the State Department later, we'll talk about um, the importance of leadership and communicate and how that leadership communicates with the employees. Because just like you guys want to know the why, I'm sure there are many employees within OPM and GSA that are curious about why this is happening and mm -hmm. what it's going to mean for them and their roles. So um, I think that transparency is really important. And, you know, 
OPM, obviously, they work with so many different groups. Uh, you mentioned a few of them earlier. How would you guys assess the transparency with stakeholders, Congress, and employees, and what that means for the reorganization? So what we were expecting, and this is um, some of those key attributes for a successful transformation that GAO has reported on in the past, we're looking for direct and continuous involvement with employees, Congress, and others like the IGs and GAO. Um, and we have not seen that. We, we just have not seen that. Um, GA, GSA met with Congress a, new, a number of times. They said that they held town halls with employees. They also created a dedicated email inbox for employees to exchange, um, ask questions, get information. Um, and so GSA has done some efforts to be transparent. Um, we do think that OPM and OMB could have done a better job. Yeah, so there's uh, definitely been some movement, but also room for improvement. Um, Yvonne, I, I wanted to kind of turn it back to you for a hot second, because one of the things that you mentioned when we discussed the high risk list was that OPM has been meeting the leadership commitment mm -hmm. um, within strategic human capital management. So maybe this is, I guess, tailored for both Triana and um, Yvonne here to discuss, like, if, if OPM is meeting that internally, do you think this reorganization could disrupt some of the progress that they have made in making that commitment and um, meeting the commitment to leadership? Well, when I spoke of leadership, I was talking about the commitment that OPM had made to uh, dealing with the high-risk issue of strategic human capital um, management, and OPM has taken a leadership role vis-a-vis -vis the agencies and the chief human capital officers council. Um, whether or not um, a reform would disrupt that, I guess, depends in large measure about what happens to the people who are leading this effort at OPM. Now, OPM also works. They work with groups and uh, task groups in the agencies. So those groups would still be there, but OPM has offered uh, in agencies technical assistance on thinking through how to identify and to uh, create solutions for the skills gaps that they have. So um, we, I don't, I think we don't know, factually speaking, whether a reform would actually result in disruption. It's possible. Yeah, I, I would agree with Yvonne on that point. We, we just don't know yet. Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons that it's great that you guys have really gotten ahead of the ball and are, you know, forcing the agencies to ask these questions, uh, which I think is really important. One of the things you mentioned, Triana, is how um, OPM does work on preparing for the workforce of the future. And that has been an initiative for them for quite some time now. I mm -hmm. believe in your report, you say since 1989. Uh, so I'm curious about what that has looked like over time um, and then, you know, how this reform would impact that. Sure. Uh, like you said, um, as far back as 1989, GAO has reported that OPM had not provided the leadership necessary to resolve critical human resource problems. Um, since, since we've started reporting on those issues, OPM has made some progress, but we believe that there is still more work that needs to be done, clearly. Um, one thing that OPM has done, they issued a federal workforce priorities um, document in 2018. And so they identified changes in technological advances and demographics, very important, very helpful. Um, but they still need to do, for example, identify future skills and competencies needed to close existing gaps in the federal workforce. And that's critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we move on to our next case study, I just wanted to give you one more chance if there are any uh, really important things here relating specifically to like human capital management within the government as a whole and how OPM can do that and how this would be changed through uh, the reorganization. Um, I would love to hear your final thoughts. Sure. Um, the, the two important keys for successful reforms, and this is 
any type of reform, not just the one that we're talking about today. You've got to have transparency. You've got to engage with the Congress, the employees, and other stakeholders. Those are two keys to success. Um, And I would just want to reiterate, um, wherever these functions go, you've got to stay on top of the trends for the workforce and coordinate and collaborate with stakeholders. Again, engage. And I know uh, you had mentioned that you think there is some effort to reach out to stakeholders, but not enough, and particularly not enough documented. Um, Have you seen the, you you testified before Congress recently, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that. Have you seen the appetite on the side of lawmakers to um, kind of work with you guys in addressing these issues and getting better clarity on what OPM and GSA have been doing? Oh, for sure. Um, We started this, um, this work Um, in the summer of 2018, um, and it was at the request of Congress. There's a lot of interest on the Hill. Um, They really want to understand what is the plan, what are they doing. Um, If they could talk to us, we might be interested in the efforts that they're planning, but they've got to be transparent. Um, And I do think that there has been some progress to be more transparent with the Congress, but I think it was a bit late. Yeah, and I know OPM uh, just got a new director confirmed. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I think we're going to talk a little bit about now at the State Department is kind of the difference between having an acting versus having a real director uh, or someone who is confirmed. And um, so there is definitely a change, it seems like, on the horizon. And uh, that might, you know, there's interest from both stakeholders in Congress and um, GEO has laid out a lot of really important uh, recommendations for the future and for improvement. So that is an issue that we will continue following, be following closely and see what happens. Um, I want to turn the attention a little bit over here to Jason. We've, uh, you know, introduced you. You do a lot of work within the State Department and USAID. And um, I want to kind of start with there, there are a lot of reforms going on within the State Department. What prompted these reforms? If you could speak a little bit to the kind of climate going into this, and there's a lot of reform, a lot of reorganization. Uh, why, I guess? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, you know, starting the story at the beginning, you really have to go back to the, the very beginning of the current administration. Uh, the administration relatively early on, as, as with many ad- new administrations, uh, put out a directive. In this case, they issued an executive order that directed – OMB to help reform, reorganize, restructure, make more efficient the entire federal government apparatus. Uh, OMB then, as a result, directed all the agencies to come up with plans uh, that they would run through them in order to implement those. And every agency did that a little differently. Uh, In the particular cases that we looked at, the State Department and USAID, uh, they initially started their effort as a joint effort. And uh, they really started by trying to do some of the things that Triana was talking about earlier about getting employees involved. Uh, and so they hired a contractor and, and sent out a survey uh, to all State Department and USAID employees. And they had over $25,000 uh, 25, State Department employees and over 6,000 USAID employees respond with ideas for things that um, the agency could change or reform or restructure that would make their lives easier and allow them to do their jobs more effectively. Uh, as well, they hold, held a number of town hall meetings. They brought together teams of senior executives and so it was a, uh, a process that involved a lot of uh, idea generation at the very beginning. And that was really the spark for what, what kind of got the State Department and USAID moving. And um, we talked a little bit about the um, importance of having your employees engaged, having stakeholders engaged. And it seems like that, you know, was a priority for them. It seems like that was immediately something that they focused on. Um, which, you know, I would think is commendable um, that they, you know, immediately wanted to hear from employees what reforms needed to be made. I think the other side of that is then leadership and how leadership is involved and engaged with the transition, which we are going to discuss, but we are right about the time for our second break. So we will put the pin in that and then discuss it as soon as we return. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We'll be right back. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am Natalia Castro, and I am here with Yvonne Jones, Triana McNeil, and Jason Blair from the Government Accountability Office. We are talking about human capital management, and we had just spent some time talking about OPM, GSA, and how that reorganization uh, was impacting both the agencies themselves and human capital management at large um, and what some of the most important elements of that were. And then we were jumping into the State Department. Uh, We talked a little bit about what prompted internal reforms. And uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit less of the employees and a little bit more of the leaders. Um, I'm looking at the August 2019 report on State Department leadership focus needed to guide agency reforms. And one of the critical elements, Jason, that you focused on in this report was leadership focus and attention. And so I wanted to turn it over to you, talk a little bit about what you guys found um, and about the importance of that leadership. So as Priyana talked about earlier, one of the real fundamental issues for making sure that you have the best chance of succeeding in any kind of significant agency-wide reform is having a real leadership focus and attention. And so when we looked at that at State Department and USAID, uh, it was an area that we delved into in significant detail. So on the State Department side, uh, we talked a moment ago about the effort and the energy that went into getting employee opinions, and they developed a number of ideas and came up with about 17 uh, reform projects that they decided they wanted to pursue. Um, The secretary was actively engaged regularly with employees on um, explaining the importance of why, uh, why they needed to move forward on on these uh, issues. As we know, uh, there was a transition at the top of uh, the Department of State uh, as we went from Secretary Tillerson to Secretary Pompeo. Um, Anytime there's a change at the top of an agency, people are going to ask, well, do the old priorities still hold? Are there going to be new ones? Of course, there's going to be a mix of both, uh, probably in most cases. And that was certainly true with what we found uh, in this particular transition at the top of the agency. Uh, you know, the, the new uh, secretary certainly prioritized and focused on things like dealing with the impact of the hiring freeze. Um, they saw that as a significant problem for the agency, as well as some other internal reforms. Um, and so relatively quickly after this particular leadership transition, uh, they moved from what I talked about earlier, having some a core executive team that was really leading uh, the overall reform efforts, overseeing them, monitoring the status of them, reporting back to the secretary, having that high-level involvement. And that group was disbanded, and the uh, the real responsibility for implementing them was essentially devolved down to the bureau level. And uh, that's where we found there was a lack of clarity. People were really unclear about whether the individual items that they were tasked with seeing through did really remain a priority for the current secretary. And so there was that, you know, kind of question in the back of their minds, is this something that really needs to devote, you know, a lot of my time and attention? Um, I think the other thing in terms of leadership transitions that we found was that uh, gaps in key positions really can have a significant impact. And so, you know, for instance, one of the real notable uh, issues that a number of the employees and managers that we talked to really highlighted for us was, there was a 17-month period at the beginning of, uh, of this administration where there was not a confirmed undersecretary for management. 
And because many of the reform proposals, I think all except for one probably, really fell under that person's purview, no matter how strong uh, a leader that person was, there are always going to be some kind of questions about, does this person really have the long-term responsibility for leading the agency? Um, are they going to make difficult decisions and things like that? And so when you combine all those together, that's where we really saw the need for leaders, leadership focus and attention at, at a few different levels. And uh, the other side of what you guys discussed in uh this report on leadership as well was the managing and monitoring um, of the progress throughout. And I would love to hear you speak a little bit to that side of the coin and how that has impacted the reorganization. Yeah. Managing and monitoring is really critical as you're moving through that implementation phase. It's great to come up with wonderful ideas, but if there's nobody who's really tasked with the responsibility and frankly held accountable for making sure that the vision that was laid out and the projects that were agreed to really are coming to fruition. If you aren't staying on top of the progress on those issues, that's when you have the risk that you know things are going to slide, uh, or the you know the scope of projects is going to really get scaled back uh, because maybe there aren't enough resources flowing into it. Things like that. Those are the kinds of issues that you're going to identify when you are really monitoring the progress of those. And what we found that was with the devolution of the responsibility for managing and monitoring those progress pushed down to the bureau level with uh, the dissolution of that key executive team overseeing all the all the reform efforts was that you, you didn't have that same level of focus on monitoring the status of those. And so even when we went and talked to a number of the officials, they, they just weren't sure exactly where things stood with the with the projects. So now a lot of these projects have been going on for about two years now um, within the State Department. Um, I know you discussed a little bit in your report. Uh, what's the progress? Um, like you, we talk about accountability. We talk about managing and monitoring. That's, I mean, you guys play a huge role in uh, keeping up with the progress of how these reforms are doing. So I'm curious about where these are at. Yeah. So when we, uh, when we concluded our work of, of the 17 projects, there was one that was completed. It was admittedly a, you know, relatively straightforward, though not necessarily easy, uh, kind of updating of their internal processes for how the State Department collectively would kind of clear a new policy or, or improve um, a particular process. Um, the rest of the, uh, of the projects uh, admittedly were kind of all over the map. They cover things like human resources. They cover things like uh, real property management. They cover things like information technology. A lot of those issues had been issues that the State Department had been working on for a long time, but the projects haven't come to fruition yet. Um, we'll continue to monitor the status of, of the State Department's rec uh, implementation of our recommendations, uh, but a lot of those projects, as far as we see now, have not yet been completed. And you guys have also taken some time. Uh, you guys have a report that just came out this month specifically looking at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, um, and you focus a lot on both strategic workforce planning, um, identifying and meeting staffing needs, establishing outcome-oriented performance measures. Um, I think we should start with strategic workforce planning and what that means and why it is so important, particularly for USAID. Yeah, so in this context, uh, as, as Yvonne and, and Triana have both talked about, the importance of strategic workforce planning is critical over the entire life of an agency. But it's especially important when you are considering and then implementing some kind of a reform or reorganization. Because the process for strategic workforce planning really should set the foundation for where you, not only where you are now, but where you want to be in the future. As a result, it requires a bit of forecasting, right? What's the workforce that we need five years from now, as well as what do we need now? What skills do people need to have? Where do we have gaps in those things? How do we go about acquiring them? What, what training do we need? Where do we need to do additional, additional recruiting? Those are all issues that are wrapped up in that question. And the, the risk is if you embark on a fundamental reorganization of your organization without having a strong foundation with strategic workforce planning, you may find yourself with different boxes on your org chart, and you may unintentionally end up with gaps in key areas that are going to not allow you to be as effective or as efficient as you want to be at achieving your mission now and in the future. That was a really great overview. Um, I'm curious about where USAID is on developing that plan and what you found in your report um, regarding that. So the, our fundamental finding was that they've been working on a plan for quite a while. They've been working on it since at least 2017. And they've made progress on it, 
Uh, but they don't have all the elements that, in our view, uh, they really need to have. They don't have all the tools that they need to come up with kind of what are our baselines, where are we as an organization now, and where do we think we're going to need to be, and how do we go about filling those gaps? And that's where I think the next step is for them. They need to figure out the answers to those fundamental questions and then lay this out as a document that's clear and transparent to the entire agency, that it's clear that the leadership is bought into, and so that the entire uh, organization can understand from a human capital perspective, where are we going? And I think in another important element of that is um, being able to measure performance. And that's something that you guys hit on as well uh, in this report. So I would love to hear about how USAID has established performance measures and the trajectory that that is on. Yeah. So we looked at uh, outcome-oriented performance measures and the extent to which they had them with specific regard to the implementation of their reform efforts. So this wasn't a broad kind of look at the overall agency and how well they're doing at performance measures. It was really much more focused on uh, on the development of those for the reform efforts. And we found that there were a few projects that had outcome-oriented performance measures, and we commend them for those. But by and large, I think we only found about four. And so what we really want to see from them is as they move to the implementation of a number of projects, they're clear about where they're going with those, what it is that they want to achieve, that they've got some things that are measurable so they can measure their progress toward them, and frankly, so that they'll know when they get to the end point. Yeah, I think understanding the goal is something we've said a few times that is really important because then you can be accountable to the goal. Um, And so I think that's a really great point. I'd love to give you a chance to kind of discuss a little bit more in depth about some of the things that you've mentioned and what some of the key takeaways are from this case study within both the State Department and USAID. Yeah, so I think one of the real key takeaways is about leadership focus and attention Uh, because without it, it's very, very difficult to implement significant reforms on an agency-wide basis. Um, You know, individual employees just don't aren't empowered to make significant decisions, especially when they cut across agency boundaries. Um, But even when they cut across boundaries within an organization, so between, let's say, bureaus of the State Department, a lot of the the reforms that are proposed in both state and USAID have impact on multiple organizational units. And so the head of the individual units don't have the power, the authority, and frankly aren't accountable – necessarily for making sure that those reforms happen in the most effective way possible. And so that's why you need to have senior leadership. And that's why we really do focus, as Triana mentioned earlier, on the importance of having a dedicated implementation team that's got continual monitoring of where those are and that has uh, the accountability for making sure that the vision that was laid out and agreed to really happens. I think a lot of what you just mentioned and you kind of alluded to it is very similar to some of the issues we're seeing at OPM and GSA regarding the importance of leadership, communicating with your team, having a stakeholder input. And I'm going to ask you a similar question that I asked Triana. Have you, as there are um, kind of issues, you know, that need to be addressed, have you seen an appetite from Congress to do oversight on some of these reforms? Absolutely. Uh, you, know, you know, from the very beginning, we're doing this work at the request of Congress. They they recognize that some of the issues that were under consideration were going to be significant. Uh, some of those were within the authority already of either the State Department or USAID uh, to conduct, but others of them at, at a minimum required notification to Congress and for them to approve that. Others of them potentially could have required legislative changes. And so they were looking down the road and they were seeing that they needed to be engaged relatively early and often on where the departments were headed on those things. And so they've definitely been engaged in these discussions throughout. And they've asked questions as, as, as senior officials from the departments have come to them to testify on other issues. They've wanted to hear about kind of where do things stand on those issues. That's great. Um, I think that's, again, similar to with OPM GSA, it is encouraging that there is uh, attention and focus on this and that Congress is doing their critical oversight job of making sure that these someone is accountable for these issues um, and that there is a leadership dynamic in place that moves the ball forward significantly. Um, we are going to talk a little bit more about how these issues engage with each other and um, identifying what this means for the entire federal government. But we are right up against our final break. 
So just a reminder, you are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're going to stop here for a word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show on the high stakes of human capital management. Again, I am Natalia Castro sitting down with Yvonne Jones, Triana McNeil, and Jason Baer from the Government Accountability Office. We've talked a lot about uh, some of what human capital management is, uh, the best ways to do that, And we've looked at OPM, GSA, and their reorganization and some reform efforts within the State Department. And we've heard a lot of similar issues coming up um, regarding leadership, employee engagement, stakeholder interests, understanding how your workforce is changing. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that there are some similar issues in two different agencies. And so I want to kind of Bring it back to understanding how this is a problem across the federal government and how it can be improved. So I want to throw it out there for you guys. What are some of the systemic or structural challenges to effective strategic human capital management that GAO has identified in the federal government? As you mentioned, we've already talked a lot about leadership, but there are a number of other challenges that, that we have identified. So one, for example, is investment, that is training uh, in the federal workforce. Another is the existing classification system for occupations that was created back in 1949. And, you know, we've had a lot of changes in the way, well, first of all, in the occupations that exist that the federal government needs and uh, the way they need to be defined to attract people to um, apply to the federal government. We have, uh, Jason mentioned, um, workforce planning. That is an issue that a lot of executive branch agencies are facing. That is being able to undertake robust workforce planning and then to have the data analytics that allows them to understand basically the skill sets that they need and then how to get them and then how do they know they've gotten the ones that that they need. Um, Recruiting and hiring. I think many, there's been a lot of discussion for a long time about um, the federal government's ability to actually attract people with the skills that it needs. And then a lot of people have experienced a long time waiting to be hired. So, you know, that's an issue that that remains. There's our pay system, awful lot of discussion about how the federal government generally pays less. Then the private sector, so how will the federal government attract people if it cannot compete in terms of pay? And then there are the federal government's performance management systems. I mean, OPM and the agencies know a great deal about the policies and the steps they're supposed to take in terms of performance management. We've discovered that managers are often reluctant, for example, to deal with staff who are poor performers. So, and sometimes... We, the federal government has had trouble rewarding people who are good performers. So that's kind of an overview of the challenges. And I'm wondering in your work, um, you know, like like Yvonne said, we focused a lot on, you know, leadership and stuff like that. But the investment and training classification system, recruitment and hiring, pay system, are, are those other things that you guys have identified as well? Yeah, I think uh, I would chime in on the State Department side. And what what comes to my mind is a work that we did earlier this year looking at the State Department's Foreign Service. Uh, We looked at the the extent to which there were gaps in the positions. And what we found that most recently, about 13% of the Foreign Service positions overseas were unfilled. And there were two important implications from that. One is that either 
that means that important work isn't getting done because the State Department defines all those positions as mission critical. Or the people who were in those positions were having to do the work of people uh, who would have been in them if the positions had been filled. Neither one is a very good outcome uh, for the U.S. government and the State Department and their ability to achieve U.S. foreign policy objectives. But the other thing that was notable to us in looking at that was when you look back about 10 years, that 13 percent vacancy rate hadn't really changed very much. And when we really dug down into it, we, we found that the State Department had taken a number of kind of tactical steps to try to either fill positions on a temporary basis or mitigate the negative effects of not having them. But I, I would say those were tactical. They weren't really strategic. There wasn't as much planning built into it, admittedly. You know, budget becomes an issue for all of those things too. And that's something that the agencies clearly have to wrestle with um, on an ongoing basis. And um, in our review focused on the OPM and, and GSA um, reorganization, um, we were more focused on strategic planning. Um, and if there are any documents that we were able to obtain um, since the the May hearing, um, we will be looking at how the strategic plans have incorporated some of those planning efforts to do the reorganization. Um, and that would be um, a part of the report that's coming out early next year. Great. That gives us something to look forward mm -hmm. to. <laughs> and I'm curious about what recommendations GAO has made specifically to OPM to address some of the skills gaps that are mission critical, as you discussed, and uh, what are some of the progress that OPM has made in this area? Okay, so um, we did make a recommendation to OPM that they, together with um, agencies and with the Chief Human Capital Officers Council, to establish a process and a schedule for getting government-wide staffing and competency data. And then there was a second part, which was to identify a core set of metrics for closing skills, skills gaps. So that recommendation, if you will, has been on the books for a while. And OPM and the agencies and the Chico Council have uh, been working on it for, for quite, quite a while. But um, what we think that OPM needs to do is to continue to work very closely, you know, with its partners to manage these issues in particular, as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, the recommendation, we cannot close the recommendation because um, we have not seen demonstrated progress across the range of executives, uh, uh, agencies in the executive branch which would demonstrate that they would have a process and a schedule for identifying their skills gaps, their, their critical um, occupations that they need to fulfill their missions, and that they also have metrics that will let them know what progress they're making. Well, and I think that goes uh, you know, right back to what we were saying with the State Department and the importance of managing, managing and monitoring progress so that we understand, you know, how do we know what success is or when we've reached it if we're not – if we don't know what success looks like? Um, and so I think that that's a really good point. Um, I'm curious if uh, – you mentioned that there has not been significant demonstrated progress. Um, has there been any progress in agencies to identify and address skills gaps? So we talked a little bit about some – Sure. But. Well, actually, the agencies in OPM have been working on this since 2011 when, for example, we at GAO narrowed our focus on strategic human capital planning from some of the very broad issues down to looking at um, skills gaps. Um, in mission-critical occupations. So in 2011, OPM and the Chico Council created what they call FAST teams. This is federal agency skills teams composed of occupational leaders and also Chico Council representatives. And they were uh, working on setting goals for closing the skills gaps and setting targets and measures for specific agencies. So OPM has is responsible for pro providing technical assistance to executive branch agencies. So they developed a multi-factor model that helps agencies identify the factors that influence their ability to hire and retain staff. So they, you know, they've done a lot of training uh, on the model for agencies. For example, 
The model has identified staff quit rates. That's the number of people who leave the federal government after being hired. And also the two-year staff retention rate as indicators of potential loss of some staff with critical skills. So we know that, for example, if uh, staff stay for two or three years in the federal government, then they're likely to stay longer. So when the teams, you know, they, um, they gather the information and they apply the model to identify occupations in their agencies most at risk to lose staff. So for example, the Internal Revenue Service in the Treasury identified revenue agents as an occupation where they were more at risk for leaving the agency than other occupations. So the team determined, that is the FAST team, determined that one of the reasons agents were leaving was a lack of developmental uh, opportunities. So the IRS then developed an action plan, one to inform agents of existing developmental opportunities and then to provide these different kinds of training and experiential opportunities. And they are keeping track of you know, which agencies are being given the opportunities and the impact. That's incredible. I uh, didn't, I, I wasn't aware about some of the stuff that the FAST teams were doing. And I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting. Um, and it seems like once you guys were kind of able to narrow your focus and pinpoint for them what they needed to do, uh, there's definitely been some movement. So that is, again, encouraging news. What are some of the leading practices in the area of human capital management that could help agencies um, in improving their workforce and better meeting those missions? Okay, so let, let me give the overview. So first of all, they can cultivate a diverse talent pipeline, which means that they should go to universities, community college, community colleges, professional associations, interest associations, recruit from a number of places for the people that they need with the skills. So also um, that they need to recruit continuously and start the hiring process early in the academic school year. We know that the federal government has operated under continuing resolutions for a long time. So if the agency is recruiting continuously and some agencies actually clear staff for hiring before they have the budget so that when the budget comes, they can, they can hire um, immediately. Also having user-friendly and clear vacancy announcements so that potential federal staff know what they are applying for. Um, we do have certain hiring and pay flexibilities in the federal government. The Congress has passed laws that um, allow the, the government, for example, to pay more for specialized skills that they need. But we've done work which shows that the agencies, one, don't know about all the flexibilities that are out there. So very few people, very few staff are, take, are being given the advantage of hiring them. And also, they do not assess the value of the flexibilities in hiring the people that they need in the agencies. Then, you know, we've also found that increasing staff awareness of benefits and incentives like work-life benefits we can offer flexibility. We have many agencies have telework programs. You know, we have um, employee assistance programs, daycare, elder care. We found that a lot of people um, find those benefits interesting. They're willing to join the federal government to have those benefits as compared with the private sector where they may have higher pay. I think those are some really great um, action items, uh, not just for agencies, but also kind of tugging at Congress to kind of be involved in this as well. So it's a collaborative process throughout the federal government. This has been a really great show, guys. I want to thank all of you so much for joining us. Before we wrap up here, I just wanted to make sure our audience knows where they can find these reports. Um, On the GAO website, you can find access to some of the great work Jason, Triana, and Yvonne have done. I want to thank everyone back at home for listening in today. This is Natalia Castro on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Have a great weekend, everyone.